and episode 33 on humor. We are here and I'm joined as always with Samuel. Sam, how are you? Going very well, my friend, and could imagine a better time in the world to be talking about humor. I feel like it's something we all need right now. Absolutely. And I think when you look at laughter, the thing that we love to do, we were just doing this before we got on air. It's been shown to function so similarly, mate, to antidepressants by Mm -hmm. raising those serotonin levels. It's a muscle workout, you know, improved respiration, decreased stress and anxiety, improved mood and resilience. It's clearly a very important thing that we need to take advantage of in times like this. Absolutely. And that's not even covering the endorphins and the social connection that laughter provides. But the real question is, like, obviously, why do we laugh and when do we laugh? That's something I know a lot of people are interested in. Absolutely. And I think when we were younger, I'm sure you're the same, like when we were looking at school, like the popular kids were generally the funniest, right? You always had the class clown or you had something like that where it was also associated with some form of status in a way. Yeah, there's definitely that social hierarchy. And I feel like everyone in the world went through a period of their life when they were an angsty teenager or even an angsty 20-something-year-old and they wanted to be funnier. Absolutely. I think think everyone I know at one stage wanted to be funnier. It's a common drive and that's because there is this direct correlation between social status and where you stack up um, depending on how funny you are. And because humor is so important for, for the way we connect with other people and the value we perceive other people to be providing. We like think, funny people. Oh, absolutely. And like that's where I think the big realization as we get stuck into this episode is that the necessary stimulus for a laugh is actually not a joke, but it's another person. Like you take the example mm-hmm. of canned laughter, but you're 30 times more likely to laugh in a group than when you're alone. Now, I'm not saying you can't laugh when you're alone. It happens. But if you're alone, you're not really. You're maybe laughing at a YouTube video that involves stimuli of other people and so on and so forth. So I think that becomes a really key distinction, uh, as you said, with the social component um, of humor and laughter. Uh, absolutely. Or when you walk into work in the morning and just gibberish with your, your coworkers and start laughing for no reason. How many times have you laughed for almost no reason? There's never a joke. Oh, absolutely. It just feels so good afterwards. And I think like Mm. Johnny Cleese, uh, the great man, has once said that laughter connects you with people. It's almost impossible to maintain any kind of distance or sense of social hierarchy when you're just howling with laughter. And it's to your point, right? In a corporate setting, when you have a leader and say, a subordinate employee laughing, it all, it changes the dynamic, it flattens things. And also just in your personal life, the moments you remember are when you're having those massive belly laughs. Absolutely. It's the great leveler laughter. Uh, and it's why we all love comedians, I think. Oh, subconsciously. I just, I just want to be a really good comedian. Can I ask, by the way, who is your favorite comedian? Or and anyone? Uh, so I really like Andrew Schultz. Ah, uh, yeah. Does a lot yeah, of crowd work. Really fun. And really smart too. And his ability to just come up with these cross-cultural references in real time is crazy. I'm, I'm super impressed. What are you? I'm a Ronnie Chang man. And yeah, yes, because I'm funny. Asian. <laughs> relatable. <laughs> oh, incredibly, incredibly relatable. Um, and I think as we as we transition into it, mate, I think the yeah. first question we normally try and answer is like the evolutionary purpose of humor, right? Which is like, if this has been really important to our survival, why? And there was this book or this um, paper called Laughing Matters, A Serious Look at Humor by John Durant and Jonathan Miller. And they found a couple of reasons that I wanted to run past you in terms of 
its evolutionary purpose, so to speak. The first one is that it's a powerful social lubricant. Really weird use of that, but sure. And the whole idea here is that it helps create and deepen bonds, especially as we grew into larger and more complex social structures. In previous episodes, we spoke about the Dunbar number, that you can only really maintain 150 connections or friends and people. And so you can imagine it becomes a really important one as you as you scale. But the other one, as I'm sure you've experienced, is it diffuses conflict and it's generally a mm. sign of safety. Um, USC, USCLA's uh, Gregory Bryant, he basically said, laughter may indicate to listeners friendship status. And it's also a key identifier of friend versus foe, whether you identify your friend's laughter versus a complete stranger. So those are the key things that um, they seem to highlight from an evolutionary purpose. We also know if you're looking at um, some of the research in, in rats and actually primates too, that laughter is used, as you said, to signal that this is a, a playful environment or this is a, an environment where we're not actually fighting. So the difference between play fighting and fighting um, in animals, humans and rats and monkeys alike, can be laughter and smiling. Yeah, and that that's such an interesting distinction because even we talk about it right now. When you're you're more likely to approach someone that's smiling at you, even if they're a stranger, compared to someone that is obviously got a bit of a uh, RIB resting bitch face. Ooh. <laughs> RBF. Uh, yeah, that one. Yeah, RBI. <laughs> I, I'm talking about universal <laughs> basic income. I've totally got this one nailed. This is the way to go. Perfect. <laughs> Thanks. Perfect. I nail my acronyms, <laughs> and I think. The, the one thing, though, that you raised when and it comes to animals, and I think this is probably the caveat when it comes to laughter, is that involuntary laughter is different to voluntary because we started, as our neocortex grew, our cognitive capacities did, we started to be able to mimic consciously laughter as almost like a deceptive tool um, and using it to artificially quicken and deepen social bonds and in reality to increase survival odds because if you could do that really quickly, it worked quite well. And so there's this mm-hmm. distinction to make here which is friends, you're more likely to have spontaneous laughter with that belly laughter that you can't control that happens out of nowhere. But strangers, take the first five to 10 minutes when you meet someone, it's that volitional laughter. It's voluntary and you know you're faking it, but it still makes you feel a certain way. And there was this really interesting study, mate, that backed it all up, which was called The Animal Nature of Spontaneous Human Laughter in Evolution and the Human Behavior. Gregory Bryant, as I mentioned before, is that we can actually distinguish between spontaneous and voluntary laughter. We know this. But when you adjust the pitch and then you adjust the speed of laughter, irrespective of whether it's voluntary or involuntary, and you speed it up to a certain uh, level, it actually becomes indistinguishable. And so the real thing that becomes really important to note is that when you speed up laughter, all laughs were judged as more real. But if laughs are a little bit more slower and deliberate, you can sort of tell it doesn't feel natural, then uh, people start to say, hey, why is this person laughing? Mm, and that's that whole fake laugh concept that you come across. And someone's, oh, they're, they're, they're just faking it. They're laughing because of the, the environment or the situation. Absolutely. And I think, look, I do that. We all do it. And we well, always do it without realizing that it's voluntary. It's so quick. But you do think, but it happens. You think it happens, but it's all part of that connection process. So I actually remember uh, one of the neuroscientists, we'll talk a little bit later, said it's probably wrong to call it fake laughter because it's still real laughter, but it's actually used in that volitional way, purposely to connect us. Strategically. 
just strategic as long as you're not, laughter. Just as long as you're not a sociopath, then you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> as long as you're not laughing at someone's funeral, unless that's acceptable, then you're, you're probably okay. Yeah, let's not do that. <laughs> hey, some families are different. Cultures are different all across the world. But it brings us to this point of what causes us to laugh in the brain. Mm. Where does that actually come from? And the question I have is, do you usually laugh when things go exactly as you expect? No, no absolutely not. No. And that's because laughter follows something unexpected. Someone tripping over, a mishap, a surprising comment, a really quick quip in the moment, which catches you a little bit off guard and then you laugh. And in the brain, the basis of laughter is kind of this pleasant surprising and breaking of our prediction. Mm, I'm reminded of this quote by what, and trust me, I don't even know why these, his parents named him this, um, but Apple Tree Rodden, that's his name. Apple Tree Rodden. Apple Tree Strong Rodden, name. the greatest human alive. And he basically said that humor is the brain's reward for discovering unexpected errors. And to your point, it's that expectancy gap that's so, so key with how much we laugh and how long we laugh for. Yeah, and expectancy gap's the right word. But for, for people who are a little bit distanced from the neurobabble, basically it's this idea that our brain is constantly in this prediction mode, predicting mm. two to three seconds in the future what's going to happen next. And it does this based on our past, our experiences, our story, our journey, and what it's learned. And when you laugh is usually when that prediction for what's going to happen in a couple of seconds doesn't match reality, when mm. they're slightly different. And in a way, that's enjoyable. That's amusing or pleasant to you. So there's actually a paper put out in the 2013 in the very respected Nature Journal titled The Neural Basis of Humor by Black and his colleagues, uh, and her colleagues actually, take that back. And what they found was that humor engages these brain areas responsible for detecting and resolving what they call incongruity, but basically detecting and resolving when things that go differently from what we expect in a way that is really rewarding uh, and processed emotionally in the brain. So there are some really nerdy areas of the brain, like the temporal occipital parietal and the mesocortical limbic, <coughs> excuse me, mesocortical limbic dopaminergic systems and amygdala for reward, silence processing. That's where all this happens. But basically the gist of it is we laugh because something happens that we didn't expect was going to happen or we didn't predict was going to happen. And it breaks our prediction. And as a result, our brain goes, wow, that was great. That was amusing and different and surprising. Let's laugh. Exactly like my RBI comment. That was like absolute genius. I just Perfect. realized I'm a comedic genius, mate. You really, like just- you really slaughtered that one in there, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so purposely, so purposely. That wasn't on purpose. Who knew that was going to happen? Is that in the notes? Did I see RBI? <laughs> uh, potentially. And I think, um, as you said, this spontaneous... Um, laughter that we speak about is really important to do, but also the reward component because there's mm. also a difference between laughter and humor to make the distinction. When, like, when we were talking about how we're going to name this episode, we're like, do we call it humor? Do we call it laughter? Or is it in reality both, as it always seems to be the case? And humor is the cause, laughter is the effect. And just to digress slightly on it, which is humor is that underlying cognitive process that frequently but not always leads to laughter. And that's a key word, but not always, because you can try, but you can fail ethically, which, uh, which does have the tendency Proof. to happen. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> Case in point, raising my hand, Kieran Goy. Um, but it's, I think the thing that I underestimated about this, to be honest with you, is how complex it is, because it requires mm. language skills, humor. It requires theory of mind. It requires symbolism, abstract thinking, social perception. You're using so many parts of your brain 
when it comes to humor that it's a really difficult process, mate, which I'm, I'm sure you know. Yeah, you are. I mean, there's so much social processing going on in the brain. You think about how much is going on in terms of drawing this association and concepts and, and bringing from the, the memory parts of your brain to recognize things. It is really, really, really complicated. Absolutely. And then you sort of distinguish downstream, let's assume humor's taken place, then laughter. And that, as we said, results from indirect stimulation of motor sensors of the CNS via the higher cognitive centers. And all I'm just trying to say here is that, that there is really a physical component to it. You have those like involuntary lung and vocalization spasms that really confer no benefit to ourselves. Like it's the same as tickling, but it seemed to have propagated across time, the physical manifestation of laughter. And the other thing that's really important is that it does stimulate similar circuits to the dopaminergic system. Like you said, it's eating or it's sex. It's really pleasurable and it's easily reinforceable. And so you could argue if you really wanted to have created a long bow here, that when we discover these areas, errors that are happening within the brain and we're discovering that in environment, it's our reward for finding those errors that may increase the survival of the genes. And that's something that's been postulated. Not going down that track, but it's an interesting one nonetheless. Does this Putting distinction make theories. sense? Does this make yeah, sense? I think it does. And that, that idea that humor and laughter are actually separate concepts and they can happen completely separately too. Especially, I think, for, for anyone listening, the idea that... You know, everyone can laugh, but not everyone has an amazing sense of humor. Some of us have better senses of humor than others. And the reason that might be more developed is because of just how complex this skill set is. Absolutely. And you would hope that there's some sort of basis for humorous people, right? Like, well, I want to know what there's makes be them connection. better. What makes them better? Like, oh, hey, teach me. Well, well, well. <laughs> if, if only you hadn't read my mind, Mr. Karen. <laughs> Talk so, to you, there, there is actually uh, some basis and some research around that. And the basic idea is that funny people are really good at connecting the dots. Mm. Funny people are really good at connecting the dots. So preface with a 2016 study in the peer-reviewed uh, peer-reviewed study in the journal Frontiers of Human Neuroscience. The study was called The Neurocorrelates of Human Creativity by Omir and colleagues. And this study got a lot of press. Forbes, Guardians, and James, we're talking you know, all the big press outlets, and for good reason. It's because in this study, they studied 22 improvisation comedians from the LA Groundings troupe, comedy troupe. And they also took in some amateurs, some professional uh, improv comedians, uh, and then some people who had done absolutely nothing in terms of comedy before. So complete rookies, right? They got these three groups. And what they did is they gave them uh, a cartoon. They gave them a cartoon from the uh, New York Times without any words and said, come up with two funny captions, a funny one uh, and a mundane caption. And then during they did this process, they actually scanned their brains. And what they found was the improv comedians, the professionals, had very different activation in their brains than the people who weren't improv comedians. And even more so um, compared to the ones who had not done any improv before. So compared to the amateurs and, and the complete novices, so to speak. And the difference was this. The improv comedians and the professionals had much higher activation in the regions of their brains responsible for associating between mm. concepts, between drawing and connecting the dots. But they also had less activation in the thinking part of the brain that's deliberately trying to connect those dots, the prefrontal cortex, the medial prefrontal cortex. And so what that basically says is people who are funny or people who are professionally funny in this instance, as it would be, are people who get really good at connecting ideas and concepts quickly Basically, without thinking about it, 
And that's, to me, quite positive. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it sort of lines so nicely, mate, with self-directed neuroplasticity, right? If we're going to talk about the the line between amateur and professional and we sort of try and take the number of hours that people would literally be sitting there trying to craft these jokes and trying to craft these things, it's quite an effortful thing. So you think about, you know, the neuroplasticity that's actually involved in that, it could be a, a very clear link. But that that idea of associations, you can see what funny people do. They see something, you see it in their head when they're doing it, when they're like they're, they're going for the joke and they make it so quickly people don't realize it people laugh absolutely all it takes is if you watch a comedian on a talk show and the host throws out a couple of comments and they're like lightning they make a connection to something else and the audience laughs and i think that's really encouraging um, for anyone listening because now that you know that one of the key skills underlying humor is the ability to connect the dots quickly that's something you can practice and work on uh, in our next section on the brain tools for humor Absolutely. All right, and it's on, so I'll kick it in. And Welcome to the brain tool section where you're going to get four brain tools uh, to improve your humor and how funny you are. But we always love to introduce it with a bit of context for the tools because tools without context are no tools at all. Absolutely. And we're going to call this one the anatomy of humor that we want to talk about. And there's two points on this because Sam, um, I I think this is going to be the threads through the tools that we give, which is Mm. the first incongruity theory which is this is the big theory around why things are funny, so to speak, and humor, which is there's a difference between our expectations and reality in things that are communicated and said. And this is where the surprise and unexpected component comes, which potentially leads to laughter. And the second thing downstream of that, which again, we've noted before, if you haven't listened to the uh, previous uh, section on it, please get to it. But stand-up comedians, they make their jokes feel so unscripted, but as you and I both know, they have crafted it over years and years. It's the ultimate case of deliberate practice of performing 60, 70 times the same joke, getting feedback, iterating and trying again until it's on stage. But people sit there being like, wow, you're so funny, but don't realize how much work's gone in. And those are the two points. And that second one is so important for the people who put pressure on themselves to be funny and then go and watch a comedian. That person, Jerry Seinfeld, spends countless hours workshopping each one of those jokes. Of course, you're not off the cuff going to be able to produce the same laughter or the same level of comedic genius. And so that, that pressure is something to consider. But without further ado... Speaking of things you can do to get funnier, number one is spend time each day with funny people. And this is really simple. When we spend time with other people, our brains become more like this. There's this process of neural synchronization or neural coupling. And what happens is we begin to adopt similar mannerisms, behaviors. You think about kids who act almost identical to their parents. They have the same laugh or behaviors or gestures. And we can now use this neurosynchronization to become funnier by spending more time with funny people. And if you can't do it, if you can't get out and watch people, you could always do it from the comfort of your own home because the more humor you see, the better you get at replicating it. 
yeah, it's a fu- people are a function of your environment, right? And if you want to mimic a certain attribute, whether it's to become an elite sports person or become really, really funny, I think you've hit the nail on the head. You need to be in an, inundated with it. And that way you're seeing mm. and observing things. You'll be able to create connections both consciously and subconsciously um, that leads to that outcome. I feel like you might have a little bit of research under your sleeve on this one because this uh, makes so much sense and I think there'd be stuff about it. There is, there is. And there's some research on this humor osmosis. I came across the concept initially from Dr. Moran Surf, and this is his number one suggested tool for all his students who are asking him, how do I become funnier? And he said, spend time with other people. And the reason he cites is what I just explained, this concept of brain synchronization. So there's a piece of research uh, performed in 2012 by Lauren Numenmar out of Finland, looking at emotions that promote social interaction by synchronizing brain activity across individuals was the title of the paper. And effectively what it found is when we communicate effectively with other people, our brains become identical to theirs. They synchronize, they get completely in sync, like two phones, Bluetooth in together. Um, And there's been some other follow-up papers to this that have shown a similar thing, including one paper that looked at um, a whole bunch of people watching uh, a movie um, in a cinema together and they basically scanned their brains and looked at activation over the course of the movie and they they you couldn't tell the difference between one person sitting in seat 3A and 3B. Their brains look the same as they're watching the movie. And the reason that applies to this situation is when you are watching comedians make jokes, when you're listening, your brain is synchronizing to the jokes they're telling, the stories they're sharing, and the behaviors they're exhibiting. And over time, you'll naturally begin to adopt some of these similar behaviors. The way they deliver something, the way they pause at just the right moment, the way they engage a room. The more time you spend with them, with these people, these funny people, the more you adopt these behaviors. So that's kind of how it works. Mm, the, the connection you've helped me just make there, uh, as you know, having presented uh, you know seminars and tr- attempting to be funny in front of students, keyword attempt, there was this one guy we had who literally all yeah. he did was watch Ricky Gervais videos, stand-up commu- like act after stand-up act. I kid you not, he started to adapt the same voice as Ricky Gervais, just subconsciously, didn't even wow. realize it. And he became arguably one of the best presenters we've ever had because he was literally mimicking everything you're saying. And so I think that point on you start to adopt that, the, even the mannerisms, like if you listen to your voice and how it changes, that uh, that connection you've helped me make, I'm very appreciative of because that is exactly what happened with this guy. He did really well. That's that's amazing. <laughs> so it works in the flesh. Yeah, that, that mimicry which is what it is, um, I, and on a neural level, is is really powerful. So how do you actually apply this? Well, it's really, really simple. If you want to become funnier, find three to five comedians you watch, find your Ricky Gervais, and just watch them every day or night, then emulate them. Uh, so a really great example of this uh, is an uh, internet entrepreneur called Charlie Hone, and he didn't think he was funny at all. He spent three months watching comedians every day for about 30 minutes to an hour a day, and then afterwards, he naturally found that jokes and humor just came to him. So brain tool number one, if you want to become funnier, spend more time each day with funny people, watch videos of comedians, or spend some time with people who are hilarious, and you will naturally absorb some of those characteristics. Yeah, and you can even, to your point on brain tool number one, dissect it as well. 
to like, you know, mm. actually look at the points in the video that you found really funny, why you might have found it funny. I'm going to borrow this because I'm not very funny and I'm very keen to get funny. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Brain tool number one. Well, delving into brain tool number two now, we've sort of taken the macro. We're going into a micro sort of tactic, so to speak, um, around this that funny people have a tendency to do. And it's brain tool number two, flip yes and no. Okay. Weird. Mm. Mm -hmm. So when in everyday conversation, from an everyday perspective, people like to ask close questions. They naturally ask yes or no questions, and they do so largely as an assumed response. People do this when they really want to put across a statement, but they ask it as a question, right? Do you think is basically, I think this, so please agree with me. But what Mm -hmm. is really interesting about this is we are often compelled or cornered to give a standard response and it halts the conversation. We'll give them the answer that they want. Now, what happens here, if you want to add a little bit of humor, you want to sort of break it up, is you do the opposite to what they're expecting. This breaks the assumption that people make and it links with incongruity theory. So if if you think they want you to say yes, you end up saying no. And there's a particular structure you can follow that sort of leads to a little bit of laughter that comes as a result. Okay, so um, I'm very curious to how this works because I know those exact questions you're talking about bef- before, the, the, the questions where there's an opinion with a question mark at the end, effectively. Um, <laughs> that's, that's all that's it is. That's so it's, true, it's though. A, it is it's an opinion with just a question be written, mark. Opinion, question mark, if we were yeah. doing the transcript. <laughs> yeah, exa- exactly right. Um, so how, how does this link in with incongruity theory? How do you, how do you apply this? Yeah. So how you apply this, and I, in preparing this, I want to see if this was a commonality. I was looking at quote unquote funny people and they do this so often. It's crazy. So what they basically do, say you got to ask a question, say you're on a talk show or you're in an interview or whatever it might be. You want to respond immediately with the opposite of what you think they, you think they want you to say, right? The most important part here is the time between the question and answer. So if you wait like three or four seconds for it, that's going to be weird. But if you do it immediately within that sort of one or two seconds, you're already breaking the pattern of what they are expecting. And that's rattling the prediction, so to speak. The second thing, you obviously do the opposite to what people are expecting with a smile. So you'd say, yes, no. And then the three, which is really key, is to follow that with a laugh. And this is a very similar to canned laughter, right? Which is when you watch Friends with canned laughter, it's the most hilarious thing ever. But when you take the canned laughter away, it sucks. And this is the exact same thing with many things. So you prime the audience to actually then laugh with you and then you answer it how you would be expected to do so. And the example I give you, and I watched this one, it was Jennifer Lawrence when she shot to fame in Hunger Games and she was actually on the Ellen show. And she was asked, are you used to all the attention? And textbook like this, she did so quickly, she said, yes. And everyone sort of paused. She started laughing. And she's like, oh, no, 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 I'm just joking. And then she went on to give the actual response. But people laughed and were primed there. And you could see the entire audience smiling. And this is something that a lot of people are taught in PR to do, but it works really well. It doesn't make you the funniest thing, but it still elicits laughter, which then positively primes people towards you. And that's brain tool number two, flip yes and no. Wow. I know exactly the response you're talking about. And that's so smart because it is, it's really just breaking that prediction right away. You're just breaking that prediction off the bat. 100%. And as you said, links very, very, very nicely with incongruity theory, what people expect versus what you actually give. Absolutely. And doing it in a way that's really, really pleasant. So I'm, I'm just imagining all those you know, everyday conversations you have now or where people say, you know, I, hey, how are you going? What's news in your world? I mean, if you turn around and said, oh, I'm doing terrible. 
I actually, I actually just uh, farted and it smells really bad. You're going to make <laughs> someone laugh. Now, that's a terrible example, but for it's that same I idea. I, I like it. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you laughed because that could have been awkward. Can't laugh. Yeah, tough crowd. It's like. <laughs> Pipe it in. <laughs> Pipe it in. Um, but I'm, I'm just thinking that that works in so many situations of, of flipping that expected answer immediately um, and then kind of priming the other person or the other people to laugh. Honey P, 100%. I like it. I like it a lot. Um, and you know what? I've got a great place you could use that in brain tool number three. There's a, a great opportunity to use this. So your point earlier before that you know, stand-up comedians are constantly practicing and iterating and workshopping their jokes is really, really important because humor is often learnt. It's adopted from the people around us, from our parents. It's why we often have similar senses of humor to our friends and our parents. So how can you get better at being funny? Well, use brain tool number three. Go to improv classes. Go to improv classes. Mm, okay. What does this one involve? I like, I like the sound of it. So the idea is that, you know, the brains of professional comedians have one thing in common as we talked about before, they're better able to associate between concepts and freely associate without thinking. When you go to an improv class, which is you work on your improvisation skills, it's kind of like drama and mixed with comedy, you're actually building your association muscle. You're working it out every single class you go to. And so improv is practicing this free association, which is the basis of humor in the brain. So going to improv class classes is working out your humor muscles. And like, as you said, you now you've looked at people that are funny. You're now in an mm. environment where people are trying to be doing it and have that tri- opportunity for trial and error. And so you end up starting to form a bit of pattern between what works and what doesn't. Because in terms of a feedback loop, right, if someone doesn't laugh, then uh, you're not funny, <laughs> right? But if someone does and you start <laughs> you to know. see what uh, what happens there, it makes, it makes sense to me. Is there any research around this? So there isn't any particular research around improv classes as the mechanism. But um, Dr. Biederman came out and said, you know, the professional improv comedians are really, really able to let their free associations provide mm. solutions. And these were professional improv comedians that we mentioned in our study um, before in the earlier part one. And when you looked, when they looked at the brain scans of professional comedians, it showed they relied less on their medial prefrontal cortex and more on these temporal regions of association when coming up with something funny. And when you're in an improv class, you're effectively working through this skill set. So the way you would implement this is simply if you really do want to become funny and improve your sense of humor, one of the best brain tools is to go join an improv class. I actually had a friend who did this, Paul. Shout out Paul. He's a great guy. He went to an improv class and I noticed a difference. I really Mm. noticed a difference when I caught up with him next time. He was just a lot quicker and sharper Mm. and was making these jokes on the fly. And I, I don't think I said anything at the moment, but I remember leaving the conversation with him thinking, well, that, that's had an impact on Paul. That's actually done something really, really cool. And you'd imagine as well with, with Paul, I'm, I'm only just guessing here, and please correct me wrong, but almost like an air of confidence that would have come with it, right? Because you've, you put yourself in these situations which are so unpredictable, you don't know what you're going to say, but exposing yourself to that, you sort of get used to um, the idea of like maybe rejection in a way as well. Obviously not backing that up with neuroscience per se, but I can imagine those improv classes are a place to just fail with these things. 
Absolutely. And be getting comfortable with failing and practicing on the fly. So that's uh, brain tool number three. Go to improv classes if you really, really seriously want to work on your humor. And that beelines beautifully into the last one, which is brain tool number four. Another tactic that might pop up in said improv classes and the ability to use it is using the rule of three. Now, mm. what happens here, Sam, is like when people ask you for like a list of things or you go through and are asked a question, we normally just rattle off things that are congruous. They're similar, right? Like classic questions of like, how was your day? You'll mention the same things over and over again. And most of the time, most of the time, people switch off, right? Because they, they sort of already know the response. It's going to yeah. be like, if you ask, how, how are you? It's good, bad, neutral. People will say the same stuff. And again, we're giving them people what? they expect. But if you're trying to break the mood and trying to actually be a little bit funnier, so to speak, um, boiling that humor, always communicate items or lists in groups of three, but here's what you need to do with them. You make the first two normal or congruent or what people are expecting, and the last one you want to leave as unexpected. Okay. Very, very interesting. And it's interesting because I know a couple of writers who use this almost exclusively. Um, do you have any examples or may I provide an example? Oh, mate, you can, you can definitely provide an example after I give you one, if that's okay. Just going to chuck one. Right, you go, you, you just go to, first. Just give me solidify. an example. This could be terrible. Please. So let's just say, I hope yours is better than mine. But if someone asks, right, how was your day? You could say it was great. I went to work, took out the trash and questioned my existence for a few minutes. How's yours? Like that, even though it doesn't seem super funny, someone might smile. They might do a little bit of a laugh. They're, they're literally, you'll see them mm. recalling like, wait, what did this person just say? And that again creates a little bit more of a gap for humor. But, uh, you know, as I said, it's surprising incongruous. I feel like your example could add a lot of value to this brain tool. Give it to me. Okay. So I'm, I'm thinking about one particular. I'll give you a couple from this writer, Dan Nelkin. Shout out, Dan. Uh, he suggests using it in, you know, kind of like a LinkedIn bio, right? For example, mm. could be founder, CEO, and job title exaggerator. Or, nice, maybe, I like it. <laughs> or maybe creative director, copywriter, and dog walker. Or you could be a comedian, talk show host, and ice road trucker. So that was actually Alan DeGeneres on Twitter. But it's that structure, right? You know, two things that seem associated and related, and then one thing that is just completely out of the blue. Absolutely. It's like, and it checks yourself, right? Like even when you were just giving me those, even though I know I was expecting you to have a third one that was last, you still can't stop that involuntary response of like, hi, wait a second. That still doesn't really make sense. But then that creates that space for the laughter uh, and to do so. And it gets people to lean in, right? It's all about attention grabbing. Oh, 100% gets you to lean in. And I think even when you know it's coming, because you don't know what it's going to be, it's still unexpected. I love it. Well, that's brain tool number four. Sam, shall we bring it back to the shop? I think we should. Let's uh, let's go back up to the top and wrap them up. Starting with brain tool number one, if you want to get funnier, spend more time with funny people. Your brain will synchronize and become much more like theirs over time and you will absorb their sense of humor, whether that's watching comedians in the flesh or on YouTube. Spend more time with funny people. That's brain tool number one. And something that funny people have a tendency to do a lot is brain tool number two, flipping yes and no. When people ask those closed questions that are basically opinion question mark, they have a clear response that they're wanting and their clear response they're expecting. Here's what you're going to do. You're not going to give them that. You're going to flip the yes to a no or the no to a yes and break what they are thinking. Do that by responding immediately. Do it with a smile. Make sure you laugh straight away and then answer it how you would expect. And you realize there's a few smiles that can be put on many a dial. That's brain tool number two, flip yes and no. 
And if you're looking for an opportunity of where you could use that, use brain tool number three, which is go to improv classes. If you really want to improve your ability to make jokes off the cuff, then the best way to do that is improve your ability to associate freely like the great improv comedians. And by going to improv classes, you're going to practice that. So that's brain tool number three, go to improv classes. And finally, brain tool number four, use the rule of three. As we've spoken about, when people give responses and create lists, do it in groups of three, but they normally do it about the same stuff. They give people what they're expecting. You're going to change that. You're going to basically use the first two things that they are expecting and the third one that's a little bit weird. It's like the oddball effect. It stands out. It'll make him giggle. As per what Sam said, it could be done in a LinkedIn bio. It could be done on a resume. It can be done in many different forums. But doing this creates that little gap, that little error that the brain says, what the mm. hell is going on there? means people are more likely to laugh and go on through. That's brain tool number four. Use the rule of three. Oh, four, uh, four spicy brain tools this week. I like to think they're spicy, but what's your 80-20? My 80-20 is really that humor is about connecting concepts and people. Master that, you master humor. I love it. And that links nicely with mine, which is humor is finding the Goldilocks gap between what people expect and what you give. Using mm. that incongruity theory helps massively. And that's, uh, that's my 80-20 rule. Whew. Well. I was going to say a hilarious episode this week, but I don't know how funny we actually were versus- <laughs> We were not funny. We like literally just about dived funny. into it and like, hey, here's how you be funny, but we were kind of laughing. <laughs> so here's a massive contradiction. We're going to talk about humor without jokes. Um, but I feel like we did deliver some you know, interesting science concepts. And we hope that you use them. And as we said, we'll see you next week. 